Microbrands, perhaps one of the most appreciated, least understood uh, segments of the watch business. Uh, today, I'm pretty excited because we're going to have uh, two people who, in a lot of ways, have um, helped nurture the resurgence of the microbrand segment in the watch business these past few years. Um, don't want to get into too, too much right now, but I think it's going to be informative and interesting. Um, as per usual, there's a bit of blue language here, so if you are sensitive to things like this, um, you've been warned. Okay, well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. It's your old pal Hanky here, and today, I got to be honest, I'm super excited about this. Ordinarily, um, people in the watch business, I could kind of take or leave. That's just me. That's who I am. But today, I've got two guys who in a lot of ways have really turned things on, turned the business on its head the way that I think we perceived it. Um, and that's not just in terms of uh, what we're going to get into, which is so-called micro brands versus macro brands. Uh, it has a lot to do with communication. It has a lot to do with um, perceiving and understanding what customers might want. It also has a lot to do with likability, uh, which both of these two guys have in abundance. So uh, today, the guests on the pod, we're going to have uh, Chris Vale, who is the owner of a couple of micro brands, and I'm going to let him introduce them himself. And we have John Keel, who uh, is also a veteran of a lot of different areas of the watch business, who has launched his own online store called Watch Gauge, and in addition, uh, has launched a brand new um, YouTube channel called Watch With Us. Uh, so thanks for joining us, guys. Um, Maybe, Chris, if you could tell us a little bit about your brands. Sure. So, you know, I guess recently people know my brand uh, mostly as MTH Watches. MTH um, is owned by uh, Janus Trading Company, which originally I my first brand was uh, a brand called Lou and Huey Watches, which, you know, there's still a website there. I haven't done much with that brand recently. I just discovered that it was hard enough to effectively manage one brand. So that's kind of where my focus has been mostly um, on NTH recently. Okay. And then, uh, John, maybe you could give us a little bit of uh, sort of a thumbnail sketch about your, your history in the business. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, started in 1999. Uh, my first job was I was a, uh, a national sales manager for Chrono Swiss USA. And then uh, from there, I ended up running one of the higher-end retail stores in, in Long Island here, um, we carried Audemars and a host of others. Some, some tagline to Audemars, I should say. Uh-huh. And uh, in 2014, I really, I mean, I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit. I always wanted to do something myself. In 2014, I broke off on my own. I started uh, designing and creating very high-end custom watches for individuals and corporations. And during that time, I, I decided... Um, that I fell in love with micro brands. I couple bought a couple for myself, and I, I thought to myself, "Well, gee, nobody's really out there promoting and singing the praises of micro brands, and nobody is uh, nobody's curating them to where clients can feel like they're buying, you know, the better of the micro brands." Uh -huh. So, WatchGauge was born. Um, it's basically a online e-com site that is really dedicated to to promoting and curating and fostering micro brands and the micro brand community. And, uh, and then finally, about a month ago, we launched a brand new collaborative YouTube channel called Watch With Us. 
which is uh, what I feel to be something quite different in the YouTube space for the industry. But there's a host, you know, a, a group of contributors, and we're going to be covering every aspect of the watch industry from the entry level to mid-tier to micro-brand to high-end and, and a bunch of other things in, in there as well. Okay, well, awesome. Um, yeah, and I, I'll kind of interject here a little bit. Um, the, I'm... I probably do uh, the pod because I have a face made for radio, but I have to say these are some of the most interesting watch videos I've seen in a long time. Uh, I think this is definitely um, something that I encourage all the listeners out there to really, to really go out there and check out because it's informative. Um, it's balanced. There's a lot of variety in there. It's, it's a new channel, but it's already got a lot of traction. And I think, um, if I'm just being very honest about it, for better or for worse, the the whole concept of blogs, even though those were the hot new thing, of, you know, a minute ago, uh, it seems like really more and more people are turning to to video content. And if you're looking for good video content, and I believe that Chris, you also contribute on the channel. Um, I do. I, I have a series called uh, Doc's House Calls. Okay. I, I'm, I've mostly been calling other microbrand owners, and we've just been re recording video chats. But I, I just did one the other day with a watch enthusiast who's uh, kind of prominent for some interesting reasons. So that, that episode will air in a couple of weeks. Okay, super. So yeah, we're all looking forward to that. Um, but then I guess let's move forward into into sort of the meat of the topic. You both seem like sane, rational, normal functioning human being. So I'm going to ask the same question I usually ask. What in God's name possessed you to get into the watch business? Um, Chris, you want to take that one first? Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of people know my backstory. I was in a completely different field. I had, you know, when I got out of the Army, I had about a, a, a good seven or eight year run in my sales career. And then the economy collapsed and things kind of went sideways for about the next seven years. And um, by the time... 2012 rolled around I was just miserable in my career I was looking to get out I was looking to get into e-commerce but I didn't know what product to uh to focus on I was actually focused in a completely different direction when uh, I lost my job and then a couple of days later my watch stopped and uh that all happened at about the same time that the plan I was working on started to fall apart mm -hmm. so when my watch stopped it was kind of this sort of you know eureka moment where I realized okay here's an interesting product um, what do they cost to make? Where are they made? What are the markups? What are the margins? I have a background in finance. I've run businesses before. So I started to sort of uh, reverse engineer the business by reading shareholders reports and fossil brands and, and you know, the Swiss Watch Federation's annual reports. Within a month, I found uh, you know, the forums, started lurking there. Within a month, I kind of figured this is what I wanted to do. And I've been doing it pretty much ever since. Okay. And John, you're kind of coming at it from a parallel but slightly different position. I mean, what, what initially attracted you? And I guess maybe more specifically, what's what's kept you engaged all this time? Well, I mean, just getting into the industry is really a big stroke of luck. Um, I bought my first watch with my first paycheck out of college. Uh, I realized that all of the guys I looked up to in, in my first corporate job were all wearing a fancy watch. So I went and bought myself a Taz Hoyer, which at the time I thought was really fancy. Um, and a couple months later, I met a gentleman who actually owned Chrono Swiss USA at a social event. And, you know, we struck up a conversation. We became very friendly. He, over the course of six months, he, he asked me a few times, hey, would you come join my company? And, uh, and I did. So, I mean, that's a real short version of how I got into the industry. 
that was, and I came from a tech world, so I was a, I was a, you know, in technology, so it was a much, much different world. But then I realized once I, once I started working in the industry, I started getting all the catalogs and magazines and started learning and self-teaching myself about the world of, of horology and the history of it. I was fascinated. And, um, you know, I just, I just really, I found that my, my passion was my job at that point. It wasn't something I went after. It was something that found me. And then one day I woke up, I said, oh, holy, I'm, I'm living my, living my dream here. I'm, I'm Okay, so we're back after a quick break, and um, one of the main reasons why I want to get both Chris and John on the pod was they've come up with what I think is a pretty cool idea, and um, you know, a little bit of backstory. It is something that um, a few friends of mine in Switzerland I had discussed doing, but truth be told, we never got around to doing it, and on balance, from what I've heard in terms of the feedback on it, I don't think we could have done it nearly half as well. Um, and I'm, if I get this wrong, guys, please jump in and correct me. But I think it's something that you were calling uh, micro brand you. Is that right? Yeah. And and, and yeah, you know, and so I mean, essentially, I'll, I'll paint a quick picture for everybody out there. Um, a lot of people have an idea about starting a micro brand, and I've managed a bigger brand. I had an ill-fated uh, micro brand that didn't quite make it past puberty. Uh, it's it's a it's a battlefield strewn with um, a lot of really good people with good ideas who couldn't execute. Um, in some instances, where fate um, collaborated with. Uh, bad luck to essentially scupper their ships before they could even leave port. And having said that, though, there are a few bright stars out there who not only make it from day to day, but actually seem to grow and improve. And I and I think, um, Chris, your brand definitely fits that category. So maybe um, starting with Chris, you could tell us a little bit about the whole concept. Sure. So you know, I guess maybe it's good to start with the backstory. Uh, the backstory is once I started my brand and it looked like I was up and running, um, I started to get people that also wanted to start micro brands emailing me or contacting me to ask for advice. And um, you know, very often it was something very general, like you know, what advice can you give me? And that doesn't really lend itself to a short email or a short phone call. And you know, it was always a struggle for me to kind of help figure out, you know, help them kind of figure out what were the most important things, but also not spend the entire day on the phone with them, kind of coaching them. It's, you know, and they're my future competition. Um, sometimes they would ask something very specific, like, you know, which bloggers should I talk to? to because oh, Christ, to yeah, they're trouble. What's that? They're trouble, yeah. How, yeah, do, you, how do you deal with the bloggers? <laughs> well, we'll get to that later. <laughs> I missed the joke there. Oh, no, just, yeah, I, I think just as a set, as a sidebar, I, I think one of the things that I have always sort of enjoyed about speaking with John and Chris is it's it's a minefield about, you know, bloggers, social media, so-called influencers, whatever, and it's, it is, uh, it's a hot topic, I think, for a lot of people, and how do you, how do you navigate that? So, sorry, I didn't mean to uh, take the mic away from you there. That's okay. No, it, it might have been a bad connection on my end, but... Um where I was going with that is, you know, there's one, there, there's always a, an example I'm thinking of a story, but, you know, in this case, the story in my head is a guy was asking me what bloggers he should talk to to help move his product. And I looked at his product and I thought, you know, even if I gave you the best bloggers to talk to, it wouldn't help. You've got, 
you know, real serious issues. This pro- this product shouldn't have been made, and um, you know, it's not going to fix your business to go and talk to Hodinky if they would even talk to you. Uh-huh. So, you know that that became sort of a, a, a continuing frustration for me. At the same time, I was still trying to grow my business, and I kind of felt like, um, you know, as as outwardly successful as I may appear behind the scenes, I'm still struggling and still learning. So, you know, once I got my business to a point where I felt like, okay, not only is it working really well, but it's growing and it's becoming more predictable and and it feels like what we do is not something we hope will work, but that we know will work. Then it became, you know, sort of like an imperative where I felt like if micro brands are going to be successful as a group and change the industry, we have to start developing and teaching best practices that other micro brands can easily adopt and also show them why those are the best practices to help justify and rationalize that. And it won't always be very well received if it comes from me, but it might be better received if we're talking about redistribution that comes from John, or if we're talking about marketing and it comes from my chief marketing officer, or we're talking about improving the production process and it comes from a guy who spent time at GE and 3M managing their production. So that's the workshop that we put together. And the, um, the URL for people interested is uh, workshop.microbrandu.com. Okay. So so you had your first, I mean, as I understand it, at least your first sort of official, um, I guess for lack of a better way to put it, symposium, uh, workshop, get-together. Uh, how many how many participants came out? We had five guys on pre-launch. Mm-hmm. And, and where were they from, yeah. primarily? They were mostly from America. We had one guy flying from Tokyo, which was kind of cool. Wow. Uh, he saw enough value in it and was willing to take that leap of faith. Uh-huh. But uh, the rest of the guys were all from America. I mean, the farthest guy was from California. Uh-huh. We had a guy from Florida, a guy from California, a couple of guys that were within driving distance, and then the guy that flew in from Tokyo. Wow. So that, I mean, obviously word got around pretty quickly. Um, John, you were there as well. What What's your take on... Uh, how do I put this? Because obviously, well, obviously in hindsight, but obviously it went quite well. What do you think the secret sauce is? What do you think? What do you think made your thing as successful as it was? And it sounds like it's going to be moving forward. Well, I, I, I can tell you, Chris is much brighter than he appears. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. He, we, Chris, when Chris called me, I said, you know, this is brilliant, right? Because like him, I get, I get contacted quite often about, hey, I'm looking to start a brand, I'm looking to start a store, whatever it may be, and and although we really would love to offer as much advice and help as possible, because truly, that's, I mean, it's very uh, empowering and fulfilling to do so, but our time is very limited, and Chris's idea of, of using him as the expert in manufacturing and production and things like that, myself, who's got the experience in the retail and marketing and customer service as well, and, and then these other two gentlemen took part, I thought it was an absolutely brilliant idea. The thing for me was going into it like anything else, when you go into anything for the first time, it's like, well, gee, are we really going to be able to provide enough value for these people? But within the first two or three hours of us standing in a classroom and talking to these gentlemen and, and giving them advice um, and going through our thing, immediately I knew that they were in for an enormous amount of information and the amount of experience and knowledge that they had available to them was really, you can't find that anywhere else. So I thought it was a huge success. I know that we're going to do it again. I know that the folks who took the class 
found it to be a huge success. And uh, we're still in contact with them almost daily. You know, mm-hmm. they're reaching out to us saying, hey, you know, remember when we spoke about X? And I have a question about how that applies to my business. So, so I know that both Chris and myself, as well as Josh and John, um, we're getting contacted constantly. And it's, it's very successful. It's interesting. It's fantastic. And I'm really super uh, stoked that, that Chris asked me to be part of it. Okay, awesome. So I, I guess, you know, let's, let's take a moment to think about uh, some folks who haven't quite made it. And we've had, um, you know, I, I'm not going to name names because that just sounds mean. But, right. you know, I think we can all agree that um, this is a business that attracts a certain amount of people with a certain level of ego um, that unfortunately can lend itself to not a small amount of schadenfreude when things go pear-shaped. When we think about some of the brands that have dropped off, and I guess we, you know, we can name them here because in fairness, that's just the reality and it's public. Um, what I've noticed, and maybe you guys have a different take on this, but I have felt that the brasher, bolder, and dare I say it, cockier, the boast from a brand owner seems to almost run parallel with the level of crash that some of them are experiencing when things go wrong. Um, thinking about that, I mean, is there, I mean, I'm trying to think about how I would really put this into a succinct question because it's, it's a pretty sweeping thing, but what I guess, you know, Chris, maybe you specifically, what do you think it is within NTH, you know, that, that kind of helped you not just get going and get through the lean times and get over the hump, but whereas you're actually really growing now, I mean, what is it? Is it just the benefit of being smaller that you were more nimble? Was it, you know, purely trial and error? Was it, you know, what, if there was anything you could put your finger on or even a couple of things, what might they be? Uh, it, it is kind of a sleeping question. Um, so I, I think a lot of the early success I had was because I was not already a, a, a huge watch geek when I came into it. I kind of discovered watches and started looking at them as a product within the context of starting a business selling that product rather than as a collector. I think most micro brands are started by collectors and enthusiasts and they, they come to it with a certain set of uh, biases or, or uh, preconceived notions and I think they, they kind of, they have a hard time emptying their cup of, of existing knowledge and so they end up continuing the patterns that they've seen others do that don't necessarily work well. So I came at it with kind of an open, more open mind. I didn't have any um, mentors, you know, officially or unofficially. I didn't have anybody that I was sort of modeling my business after. I came at it, at least not in the watch business. I, I kind of came at it from my background in finance, uh, working for an uncle of mine that owned a clothing store, uh, work, you know, watching my, my stepfather, who was a real estate salesman, sort of applying those principles and also learning as I went through trial and error. Uh-huh. But um, as as my business grew, I think, like many micro brands, I got sort of to the wall. I, I hit the limit of my own bandwidth, and it still didn't feel like I was making it work uh, very efficiently or effectively for, for my benefit and the benefit of my family. So I had to stop and kind of admit that I had reached the limit of my own expertise and my own skill set. I needed help. Uh-huh. That's when I reached out to um, one of the guys that helps us uh, in our workshop, this guy, John Tour, who is a, a small business growth consultant here in Philadelphia. 
I sat down with him and his partner for two days and basically peeled back the layers of the onion, looking at my own business, what was working well, what wasn't working well, and then um, came up with a plan for, you know, fixing all those things. And that made a huge difference. And, you know, John has been, you know, sort of vocal in saying that he's watched very closely over the last year and a half or year as my business has really been transformed. Thanks to the advice that I got from John Tour, but also working with my marketing guy, Josh, and uh, expanding our network of retail distributors, mm-hmm. it's really made a huge difference. And so, you know, like I said in the beginning with, with the workshop, I've gone from hoping things will work and working really hard to make sure that they work to kind of knowing that what we're going to do is going to work because we've done the homework, we've done the math. Before we do anything, we've proofed it, we've checked our, our, our homework over, and we know before we turn it in, it's an A paper. Mm-hmm. So maybe, John, kind of turning the question to you and um, a little bit more in line with your business. Um, I spent a little bit of time with John out in Queens almost a year ago now, I think. And yeah. I was, um, I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm usually easily kind of bowled over, but I was blown away uh, by everything that was going on with Watch Gauge um, as well as some other parallel projects. But what really fascinated me was the the FOMO, <laughs> the fear of missing out that so many brands, so many micro brands were feeling um, regarding Watch Gauge. And, you know, I... I hate to say things like desperation, but I mean, there was a real, and I think there still is to this moment, a real belief that, you know, if we can partner with Watch Gauge, you know, we're set. Like, this is going to, this is going to solve a lot of our problems. And I I think that's justified because you've got a great marketplace. But what my more specific question is, and obviously we won't name names, but do you ever just come across a brand and you're just like, you know, I don't see it. I don't feel it. Um... This is, you know, a little bit of what Chris alluded to, that this is just a bad idea. And if so, have you ever sort of felt the the comfort level to gently but constructively share that with the brand owner? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I hate to say it. Unfortunately, that happens on a weekly basis. Um, you know, I, I get it. I, I, for instance, last week, I got an email from a guy, and, and super nice guy. He's working very hard on a... On a on a brand and on a project, his website is really well done. And at the end of the day, uh, I look I look for certain things when I'm looking to bring on a brand onto WatchGauge. And there are a few there are a few deal killers right from Jump Street. And one of the deal killers is the types of movements they use. And this gentleman, uh, every single watch he had in his watches, they were fine designs. But every single watch that he made had a movement that I would avoid like the plague. Can so, can you can you share that with the listeners? Which one that would be? Yeah, sure. I, I won't I won't touch a watch with a seagull movement in it. I won't go near it. Um, not from not from any snobbery, not from any reason that it's Chinese or anything like that. But I actually had a large amount of watches that I purchased and that I sold very quickly and very very successfully, and they all had a, a certain seagull movement in it. And my defect or return rate was north of sixty percent. Wow. So. You know, it put in bad enough flavor in my mouth that, you know what, it's not worth the hassle. The watch could be the most beautiful watch in the world and have the best marketing in the world. But if I feel like I'm going to be dealing with a customer service headache or if I'm going to be sending watches to my clients that aren't going to be up to my standards, then that's kind of the deal killer for me, you know. And that's that's one of the few deal killers that, that I have. Uh-huh. Um, 
and and unfortunately, you know, I have to make the email. Hey, you know what? I really I really dig your designs. You know, your website's done. You seem like a great guy, and your online presence is great. Whatever it may be, but the truth of the matter is, I, I you know, I'll explain to him why. You know, look, I I'm a, I'm afraid of dealing with those movements, and uh, and I'll I'll quite frankly, I mean, on some cases, some people say, well, what would you change so that your opinion would be different? And with this guy, it was super easy. I said, man, throw some Mayota movements in there, some Seiko movements, and I'm all over it. Uh-huh. You know. So, yeah, unfortunately, I have to tell quite a few people that, look, it's, it's really not my cup of tea. And, and the, other, the other side of the coin, too, is that I sell what I would wear. I sell what I would like. Mm-hmm. So there may be some super fine brands out there. With the, the only box that it doesn't check for me is that I just don't dig the design, you know? Uh-huh. Okay. So, can I jump yeah, in here? Please, please do. Please? Yeah, so, you know, James, you started out saying that there's a lot of... Um, interest among brands to work with John and WatchGage and that there's this sort of sense among brands that getting on WatchGage is, is sort of a golden ticket. And this is one of the things that John talked about in our workshop and why I wanted him there was to get brand owners to understand, look, just getting your brand onto a, a retail site, like even a WatchGage, it's a very good site, does not mean your work is done. You know, there are certain things that the owner of those sites look for in a brand and, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, even getting your watch on WatchGage, if it doesn't sell there or if it sells but they have bad experience or, you know, if they get stuck with unsold inventory after the first 20 or 30 pieces get sold, you know, that's a problem. And right. So how do you manage that? Or if you're, you know, if you've got inventory of, of your own that the, brand, the store didn't take up and now you turn around and start discounting it. So, right. you know, this is something that John and I have talked about behind the scenes a lot leading up to the workshop. But then when we started talking about the workshop, I said, you know, all those conversations that you and I have had privately, that's all fodder for the content that I want you to talk about in the workshop with these guys. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just want to interject here because I think, you know, this is a big, this is a big misnomer that a lot of people out there have when not, not that I am even remotely of the level of a lot of other people out there writing and whatnot in terms of uh, being recognizable. But there's always just this belief that um, we somehow, you know, that there's some solid state answer for every situation that's, you know, that's going to be pat. And I, I think that so much of it you actually have to go through, which both of you have and I know I have. And a lot of it, unfortunately, is not a one size fits all solution that just, you know, to your point, Chris, earlier that you can't just pop in an email, you know, swat them on the button, send them back in the game and everything's going to be okay. Um, I think, you know, in my experience, what I've noticed um, with the brands that I, I guess I would say hit the wall or never, never quite take off is a, an inability of the brand owner or even the store owner to divorce their personal side from the business side, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I'll share a very quick short story. You know, we were, and I shared this with John, but you know, I was out in Tokyo on a on a factory tour, and there were two well-known retailers, won't name them, but one of them who still owes me money <laughs> from about ten years ago, and he knew who I was. I mean, you know, we can we can play coy, and I just had already decided I knew he was on the trip, and I'm not going to make a scene, and I'm just going to pretend like it didn't happen. You know, but these two knuckleheads are sitting there joking about how you know the various distributors that they stiff. And that they're not going to pay. Um, and what I found kind of illuminating about it is that the host for this just thought it was the funniest thing. 
Not, well, you know, they're not paying them today. <laughs> What's to say that they're not going to be paying you in a little while? And I, I guess, John, I wanted, to, I wanted to speak to you specifically about this because I'm, I'm kind of damn near evangelical about the need for brands and more specifically retailers not to just, you know, throw, throw the fish to the barking seal, you know, and hit the discount button. Um, obviously, there's a difference between, you know, the quote unquote friends and family kind of thing. But when we're really talking about it as a business model, like the the auto shift to, yes, you know, we can get this to you for 20% off right now. Um, and I know we've spoken about it, but I wanted to get you live <laughs> on the record. Um, what What's your feeling about um, about the importance or unimportance of uh, holding holding true to a pricing structure? Uh, this is actually something we hit pretty strongly on and, and we were relentless about within the microbrand university, uh, you know, two days. You know, my feeling about pricing structure is that consumers are going to find value or find your value or your work as a brand or as a retailer or as anything, as a blogger or a podcaster. They're going to find the value that you set for yourself, which isn't to say that you're going to take a, you know, uh, a micro brand and sell it for $15,000 if it's got a meal to move in the same specs as, let's say, an FDH. That's not what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. The point being is that, you know, everybody seems to be racing to the bottom, which is a common term that I think I got from Chris, <laughs> you know, with regards to the pricing because they're going to sell more units, they're going to become more popular, and all of a sudden, they're, they're a brand. The mm-hmm. truth of the matter is, and Chris laid this out quite cleanly, not only in Microbrand University, but also in, our, in, in a, a group that we're in on Facebook, you know, you, you break down all those numbers after your cost of goods sold and after your cost of your time and energy and effort and all the things that you put into it, all the money you put into it, and your net profit is damn near zero mm-hmm. or, or certainly not worth all your time, energy, and all the watches you shipped out, you know, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. So from my standpoint, I don't sell anything at a discount. I, I just don't. I won't. And the only discounts I do offer is when a brand says to me, hey, we're going to give 5 or 10% off on our site. Why don't you match us? To be honest with you, I hate, I hate when they do that because they're giving the consumers the, the value that they should have on your watch, right? Mm-hmm. So, But I'll, I'll do it. I have had a few cases, and one case in particular, a pretty big one, where I was sitting on a lot of a, a, a particular retail, I mean, a particular brand's uh, inventory, where we had a full-on agreement that you know we're not this, we're not discounting your watches, you're not you're not discounting them on your site. We're going to work hard on marketing together and raising the brand, you know, awareness and value. And next thing you know, this guy's pulling them out of 35 percent off on the site, and I'm right. sitting on ten thousand dollars worth of inventory. If you go now, we're almost a year later from that instance. If you go and look for his watches, you cannot find them anywhere, you know, for anything more than. You know, everything's selling at 30 or 35 or 40 off. He's given the consumer the perception of the value of what his brand is. And not, not to go too far off topic, but it doesn't just translate for watches. You know, I, I buy a lot of my clothes at Men's Warehouse. I don't, you know, as embarrassing as that may be, I do. I buy clothes at Men's Warehouse. I will never walk into that store when it's not buy one, get one, because I know every month or two, they're going to have a buy one, get one. So if I'm, pairing up, if I'm buying a $120 pair of jeans, I'm buying them for $60 a piece. Right. I will never pay $120 for them because they, that brand, Men's Warehouse, put in my head, that's the value of what I'm willing to pay. Exactly. So it's the same same scenario. So 
a big a big a big mistake with not only micro brands, um, but even, I think even more importantly with major brands is setting the value. When major brands sell to the gray market, you can find yep. them on dubious websites for thirty or forty percent off. That brand is set in stone the value of their product. Yeah, and I'll I'll interject on that point because this is you know for you folks out there listening. This is kind of the the ugly reality that no one is really willing to admit. And I, I always love those awkward conversations with either the brand manager, uh, the head of marketing, or, or even, you know, sometimes if it's a privately held company, the brand owner. And it's always, you know, just shock and dismay. I mean, they're a total ingenue. I have no idea how they... Of course, they know how they got the watches. They sold the watches. Those guys are you know, those guys are in the same. You know, Joma shop is stopping by booths, dropping cards, just like everybody else. So there, there's there's no question that the brands themselves feed the gray market. And although they want a, a level of plausible deniability, plausible deniability, they are the ones who are feeding the gray market because they're over manufacturing. I think that's part of the key to Christmas success with NPH is, yeah, he could probably make double the watches he's making. But yeah. all of a sudden, everybody will be sitting on a ton of inventory, they'll want to discount it to move it, and if if you limit production, make your demand higher than yeah. you know, the supply, you will never have to discount a thing. And it's, it's, it's economics 101, it's business 101, and unfortunately, I think everybody in the watch industry, and probably most industries, mm-hmm. don't, don't, don't abide by that you know, golden rule. Yeah. Well, well it's, I think it's more than just limiting production, too, though. I mean, it, you know, again, to keep harping on what we talk about in the workshop, I mean, John Tour talks about the product development process, and there's a critical step in there that I think a lot of micro brands skip over, which is, you know, feasibility, looking at how, how strong is the market appetite for this product, how, how well can you price it. I ended up spending a lot of my time talking about the numbers, the, the economics of this business and doing some basic accounting and starting to, you know, like John alluded to, running through a profit and loss on each model, even down to each watch and looking at, you know, why you have to charge a certain amount. And then if you can't get there, you know, what, how do you develop a pricing strategy? How do you work marketing into it? So it's not, it's not like I'm artificially limiting supply. The reality is I can't afford to produce watches more quickly than I am producing them right now. We're trying to ramp up production, but it's not magic. It's a combination of good product development from the very beginning, having good marketing surrounding it, understanding the, 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 the need to make a margin, and then making sure that you, know, you, you, you time things appropriately. So it's a lot of different pieces that come together to create a situation like we're in right now where like I said, we don't hope that things are going to work. We know they're going to work because we've done our homework beforehand. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I kind of want to go off on a little tangent there too, because this is this is always kind of the fun conversation I have with um, I, I would say John people who had a similar position to you and I when they first entered the industry. You know, and we're kind of all bright eyed and uh, probably a little more naive than we should be. <laughs> And I think when you read when you read the glossies or even when you read certain digital outlets, you would get the impression that these brands just magically showed up and happened, you know, and that they're sh- suddenly shitting Tiffany cufflinks from day one. And the reality—we love to curse on this call. Oh, absolutely! Let, <laughs> let, yeah, let <laughs> it rip. Yeah. 
Well, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a world, you know, this, this podcast is typically coming with a parental advisory. So yeah, just, you know, not safe for work. Yeah, exactly. So we're, uh, you know, we're, we're past the holiday season. So I'd, I'd say, say what you feel. Um, Shit, piss, hell. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yes. Use your words. Okay. <laughs> but at any rate, what I, what I've always found kind of fascinating is that we are, we're in an industry where, there is so much that people believe is secret, but where no one can really keep a secret that, you know, some of these things are just wide open. And I, I think one, you know, some of the fascinating things are just the belief that um, these big brands are as stable financially as people seem to think. And of course, they're not. Um, Who thinks that? What, what oh, moron thinks that? Oh, yeah. Go. You can you can wait out into the blogosphere, out into the forum land, out into any magazine um, you know, there's this belief that, wow, you know, this brand, brand X must, you know, be doing really, really well. Now, none of that is helped by the fact that there's this belief that if you work for brand X, you should be flying not just business class, but first class, that your company car uh, makes a statement not just about you, but about the brand itself, that even when your business is in the shit, you're going to basically keep acting as if it's not. Um, and that's, that is a luxury that if you are a big enough brand, you can afford yourself at least temporarily. Um, you know, when you go to Basel World, I can't really speak to Geneva for the SIHH, but you go to Basel World and you will see about 500 different little meetings happening on a daily basis, um, either at the Hyperion or at other hotels nearby, never in the hall, never in the hall booths, of course, because you need to keep that on the, on the lowdown. But usually what's going on is that the brand owner or whoever is, you know, at the wheel is soliciting more money. Um, without naming the brand, there was a really comical situation at Basel World this year where um, a fairly big brand, um, they had had a fairly well-known CEO who was abruptly um, defrocked, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and sure enough, though, there was the brand uh, with some tables and there was the former CEO literally lurking right behind, um, which it's a very easy thing to piece together that you, you know, you do a little bit of uh, mental math and you can figure out exactly what's going on. And probably, you know, any further conversation on this topic is best held offline. But it's it's to me, it's kind of one of the biggest uh, games of kabuki theater for the goofy that I've ever seen about the um, the gymnastics the brands will go through to make it look like all is well when of course nothing is. And I promise I'm getting to the point here. Um, when I think about, John, the brands that you work with and, and Chris, most specifically your brand, you don't really have that luxury. I mean, you've kind of got to make it happen every day. Yeah. I mean, this business is like that. Yeah. Because I mean, John's yeah. business, John's business feeds his kids. My business feeds my kids. So we have to be sharp in our decision making and make sure that we're not taking stupid risks and blowing money that we can't afford to blow. Uh huh. Yeah, and 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 Chris nor I are funded, man. We're not. You know, we don't have a conglomerate behind us that says, "Here, go spend an extra hundred grand on marketing or or the next uh, big celebrity the way you watch." I mean, every every step he and I make, or at least I don't want to speak for him, but at least I believe so. You know, it's got to be very strategic, and we have to make the right moves because we don't have the affordability to to go out and pretend that we're driving a a Bentley just to make our brand look cool. You know, I mean, heck, I'm I'm quite vocal about the pickup truck I drive. You know, uh -huh. yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I drive a, a it's a 2001 Volkswagen Passat, and the only reason 
I don't. I work from home, so it doesn't get me mileage. But uh, I got a kid that's coming up on driver's age, so I'm hoping that <laughs> it, it, it could just. I'm hoping that it'll last long enough for him to wreck it. Exactly. Figure, you know, kid gets his driver's license, he's going to wreck a car within a year. So I'm just hoping it, you know, makes it that long. But it's on its last legs. Uh huh. But yeah. um, you know, James, you know, you, when you were talking, I was thinking. You know, I, I think this is part of the value for me, at least, coming from outside of this world. I think that. You know, when I came at watches, I looked at the luxury brands, and for me as an outsider, that business never made a lot of sense. Just, you know, like, who's buying $10,000 watches? Who's buying twenty or $30,000 watches? The market really isn't that big. And, um, you know, I think if you're a watch geek and you spend all your time on the forums, I think it's easy to get fooled into thinking that the market is much bigger than it is and the brands are much more financially stable than they are. But, you know, as you and I know, just from reading the numbers, and I, I love this about your blog, I love that you're kind of pulling the, um, the curtain back and, and opening up the kimono on the industry. The numbers just don't add up. The, the, there's a lot of blood in the street. So I think, um, you know, that sort of fake it till you make it mentality or, or, you know, put on a good show that the industry is doing, it, it can't last forever. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's an industry financed by other people's money, and eventually they're going to run out of other people's money, I think. Uh-huh. I often, you know, it's yeah. funny, I, I, I'll, I'll make this point real quick and then back to you, John. I, I always kind of draw the parallel, um, you know, millionaires buying sports teams. Um, yeah. and, and I guess on the upside, it's it's cheaper to lose your money in a watch brand maybe than, you know, losing it on an NFL team. But it is that same kind of thing that very often it, you know, it's... I'm fascinated because I, I just think that a lot of the CEOs that I meet or, you know, they call themselves the brand owner, but they own like 5% of it. I mean, they're the ultimate confidence men uh, because they are, for whatever reason, they could be running in the red for years on end. And yet every Basel world, they are like dipped in gold and managed to sweet talk somebody else out of, you know, out of their family fortune to basically keep their dream afloat for another year. But that's just my take. John, you were about to say before I so rudely cut yeah, you off. No, my, my personal feeling is a little bit less, uh, you know, a little bit less, you know, doom and gloom about the future of the industry per se. And, uh, and I, don't find to be, I don't find everybody to be nefarious. Um, however, <laughs> I, do agree that, I do agree that many, many, many of the brands are exactly as you both described. I do think there are a lot of brands out there doing it right. Aha! Uh-huh. But see, that's what we want to. That's what we want to know about. So, who who do you think is uh, is doing it the right way? I think Oris is doing it right. I think Oris is doing it absolutely right. I think they, for the for the most part, they're making some fantastic watches. They're doing it at a very fantastic value. For, for the most part, for a major brand, they're doing it at a fantastic value, and they're not. I don't see my money going to Tiger Woods or to Brad Pitt or to any one of these celebrities who are, who are getting paid millions of dollars to take a couple of photos with the watch on their wrist. You know, and, and one thing I do like, and, and, you know, you guys know me pretty well personally, I'm, I'm far from a tree hugger, but they do a lot for conservation and the seas and the environment mm-hmm. with at least, at least awareness, awareness. I don't know how much money they're raising for things like Save the Ocean, but, you know, and, and look, if they're putting money towards that and it's, it's, it's just like putting money towards a celebrity, you know, I'd rather see them put money towards something like, uh, coral restoration, coral reef restoration. Mm-hmm. And again, I think, I think their messaging is great. I think their product's great. I think their value's great. There are a handful of brands out there doing it right. Uh-huh. And then, of course, you look, you look at somebody like Rolex or Protect. You know what? 
I, I like what they're doing, not because of the, you know, how big they are and the brands they are, but the truth of the matter is, is they're maintaining what they've always done for many, many years without trying to get, you know, without trying to do something that seems like, like, like a, a veil's going being pulled over my face, you know? Uh-huh. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of the Rolex Laureate program, um, which goes out of its way to recognize um, industry innovation and whatnot uh, around the world. And I, I agree with you that there are certainly a lot of brands out there that are doing it right. Um, I guess maybe John, we're, we're kind of wrapping up here, but I'm curious from your side, what. What do you think? I mean, obviously, we won't talk about Chris, but of some of the other brands out there, you know, what would you say of the micro brands that you work with specifically? What would you say they could be doing better? Um, more of a global question, but you know, what could they be doing better to do better? I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. Well, it really depends from brand to brand, right? Like, I've got one brand in particular that I carry. Do I have to tell you? And and this is not. You know, in in no way correlating to Chris's watches, but this one brand that I carry has some of the nicest watches I've ever seen, almost at any price point. I mean that. Um, and for this particular brand, they're nowhere to be found. You can't find them on on Facebook. You know, the presence on Instagram or, or YouTube or anywhere else is almost non-existent. And so, what this particular guy does really, really, really well is design and manufacture his watch manufactured to, you know, an impeccable standard. But it's tough to sell because nobody's nobody's out there doing anything for him, you know. He's and, and that's his thing. He's he's not here in the States. He doesn't he doesn't speak English well and he doesn't have a marketing team. He doesn't have anybody doing the stuff for him. You know, Chris Chris is smart enough and has been smart enough since day one that he is the voice for he's he's the bullhorn for his company. Uh-huh. And, you know, so that's one instance. Another instance is the is the discounting and the production, right? Like, uh, there's one brand I, I work with, I do very well with, and, you know, they're making far too many models. They're coming out with things way too often. And next thing you know, there's an inventory issue. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that, that many of the brands can be doing. And, you know, from my perspective, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. And I would never, I wouldn't suggest this to any of the brands that I work with. But I'll be honest with you, and I'm not, I'm not tooting my, my horn or Chris's horn, but, you know, they could benefit for the, from the micro-brand new that Chris and I put on because a lot of the things that we went over, a lot of things that Chris and John Tour and, and Josh Irons went over are things that these guys can benefit from in a huge way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's tough to tell a micro-brand owner that who's owned their brand for four or five or six years yeah. and they consider <laughs> themselves, you know, fairly successful. Right. But it's the truth. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, well, let's uh, want to turn the tables back on Chris really briefly before we wrap up. You know, Chris, of, of all of the, you know, competitors out there in the microbrand space, um, are there one or two brands out there that have sort of caught your eye that you think, like, they're doing it right? Yeah, I mean... Um there's a limited ability I have to look into somebody else's business. Um, if we're friendly and they share information, I get a little bit more. But, you know, look, I mean, I, I can kind of take a good guess about what somebody's production costs are, and I'm usually within a few dollars, you know, give or take, and I can look at what people are doing, you know, to promote their brand and how they're bringing out new models. Um, 
you know, a lot of the guys I've talked to on Doc's house calls are interesting brands. I think, um, you know, kind of looking, you know, at the sort of next generation coming up, I really like what uh, Wes and Cullen from Notice and NODUS are doing. Um, they're the ones that kind of keep coming up in my mind as, you know, they're doing good designs. They're not launching new models too rapidly. Um, they're, they're gradually building up their pricing to where I think it needs to be and delivering value, and, and they're doing a good job communicating. So, you know, that, that's a good example. But, you know, even in the case of Wes and Cullen, you know, I've, I've actually, you know, had this debate with those guys in a friendly way because we are friendly that, you know, I, I think they're still learning what it takes to effectively run their business. They haven't yet reached the, the, uh, the limit of their own bandwidth and capacity, and I think they're going to get there pretty quickly. So, you know, I think that's a good example of what John was talking about, a brand that they've been around for a couple of years. They're doing quite well. And even I told them, you know, you guys are killing it. And yet, I think it would benefit them to come to our workshop. And I think there are a lot of brands like that. Um, I really like what Kyle Strutt from Stratton is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's a good guy. I'm trying to think of, yeah. I mean, and you know, one of my favorite brands, you know, and, and he's a friend of mine, and people know this, is... Uh, Avig, that's my friend Chip Yuan. I think he's one of the best designers in the business, if not the best. And, um, you know, where, where Chip struggles, I think, is on the promotion side of it because his designs are phenomenal. He always nails the price. And I just think, you know, he needs to be a, a better advocate for his own business. Um, well, he's a, he's a super know. nice guy, but he's a super quiet guy. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> I think that's true of a lot of brand owners. I mean, you look at, you know, I was going to take, you know, the opposite extreme, but, in, in sort of a very similar way, Jason Lim from Halios. I mean, you can't you can't get a Halios practically because they're you know Jason is so intensely focused on quality and bringing things out at his own pace. It almost defies logic in many ways. He's very um, practically non-existent on Facebook and the forums. Mm-hmm. He really does all of his promotion through Instagram, and you know I think I don't know very well, but I suspect that he's probably uh, struggling to grow his brand to meet demand or grow his production to meet demand simply because he is still basically a one-man show and he may be happy doing that. So, you know, it's not my place to tell Jason, hey, you got to hire people and right. start outsourcing more. But if he did, then he could start to increase his production and, and meet demand that way. But he may not want to. And, you know, it's not my place to tell people what their goals should be. Right. But it is, I, I think the point of the workshop is whatever your goals are, you want to have a realistic plan and a, and a workable plan to meet them. Right. Okay. Well, listen, guys, we'll probably wrap it up here because I know you've both got uh, day jobs you need to get back to. But I want to really thank you for taking the time, uh, giving some very honest feedback. Um, it's been really a pleasure. Um, so we're going to close it off there. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening, and we'll be back to you hopefully after not such a long break since Basel World. And until then, Tempest Fujit.